0: You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with
1: WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to SecondCity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City Live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions. On on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app and don't forget to tune in AMP Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. So we welcome back Paul Zach uh, to the podcast. He is the founding director of the Center for Neuroeconomic Studies and professor of economics, psychology, and management at Claremont Graduate University. He's written many books, and his latest is titled "Immersion: The Science of the Extraordinary and the Source of Happiness." Enjoy the pod. <laughs> at home and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can't be counted by the money spent Today was just another better left unsaid Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the
0: one that comes next. The car on the highway that leads to the job at the desk
1: by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Paul, Zach, welcome back to the show. Kelly Leonard, so happy to see you again. Uh, You note in your new book how monotony permeates many so-called creative industries like film, advertising, and education. And you write, quote, Creators of experiences use intuition to, de- to determine what people will love. Intuition is a polite way of saying they are guessing, end quote. Can you tell our audience how you more scientifically approach this difference between the ordinary and the extraordinary?
0: First of all, that sentence sounds awful, doesn't it? It's so s- snappy. and uh,
1: <laughs> No, it's a good
0: sentence. I mean, there are people who have a lot of uh, experience and training, and by their personality, they know a lot of things. Um, What I'm trying to push back on is that uh, near where I live in Hollywood, 80% of Hollywood movies lose money for the last 30 years, right? I know there's Hollywood accounting, right? So Mm. if the creator loves it, he or she, or they love it, does it mean an audience will love it? So that's the question we spent 15 years in my lab uh, looking at, and we identify signals in the brain that appear to capture the value the brain places on an experience with social content. Uh-huh. So play, improv, yeah. uh, add interactions like we're having right now. And by having that measurement, which is deep in the brainstem, this unconscious area that, uh, you know, generates emotional responses, by having that measurement tool, then we can actually say, not only is this good or bad, but how do we make it better? What parts of it are really good? a Kind of high frequency way to tune creative
1: content so that it really lands with other people, not just with the creator himself or herself. So this is at the base of your work is the discovery your lab made around oxytocin. So I think we, we should probably cover that because that's a, a really essential throughout the theme of this book. It is right. So
0: oxytocin is this neurochemical. My lab first developed a protocol to measure in humans about 20 years ago, and that forms emotional attachments. I call that emotional resonance, Sorry, I'm sharing emotions with you. We've showed us that um, oxytocin and uh, dopamine response, dopamine's another neurochemical associated with attention and kind of arousal states, like I'm here, I'm getting it, I'm, I'm on. This really weird dopamine plus oxytocin state I call immersion because it's kind of odd in the, you know, in the literature. Um, and yet it strongly predicts the value that people get from experiences. And that value is objectively observable. Buying another ticket, posting on social media, remembering the information that you just mm-hmm. saw. All those things tell us that the brain... Process this information in a way that said, oh, this is so awesome! I am digging this thing. I'm turned on by it." And that's what we really want to know when we're creating new stuff,
1: right? Yeah, because I mean, in, if we don't have that information, I mean, your first point is absolutely correct. It, it is a guess, and I've I've certainly read the studies around expertise and you know and and uh, forecasting, and and it's not good. Like <laughs> but the batting average, batting average ain't great. Right,
0: right. But you have, like you in in improv, you have a a hack. You have an audience. Either you get a response or you don't. Right. And you're learning all the time from that. People in Hollywood generally don't have an audience. Do test screening. You're, you know, pencil. No, it's not the same. That live experience is the one case in which I think measurement is actually less important because you're crowdsourcing this all the time every day.
1: Yeah, and it, we—I'm pretty sure we did not talk about this last time. Um, but I thought you, would, based on your work, I think you'd find it interesting. So for a few years, we had a program going with WPP, the major advertising conglomerate, called Brand Stage, and and they would do focus groups with with brands and and whether testing out you know the you know commercial ideas or whatever. And uh, our contention was focus groups lie to you uh, uh, for a variety of reasons. And so what the brand stage program was, they still did half a day with these folk uh, um, with the focus groups. And then the other half, we'd have our improv actors on stage, target audience in the audience, toying with ideas around the brand. And we're like, take note when they laugh. Right. And if you're capturing the laugh, you're going to c- capture... Because it's it's not... You can't help it. It's pure emotion. And and I, we never capitalized this thing as hugely as I think we should have. And I'm going to look at it in the future because... It's it really based on your work. That's a pretty almost scientific method,
0: right? Again, because those, as you said, those emotions are unconsciously produced. We we all know a fake laugh, like a fake smile. Yes. So if you're getting that, but then Kelly, what do you do with kind of sad, s- sadder cases? Or so there was this kind of rise of so-called sadvertising some years ago. This, oh, I really need that emotional response. And so from from our measurement perspective. Positive or negative emotions is less important than that you created an emotional response. Do you still get the same thing in improv where you focus on not a comic approach, but maybe something that's more poignant?
1: Yeah, well, uh, not necessarily poignant. I was going to say one of our phrases is a groan is as good as a laugh. So sometimes when you say like something, you get it wrong, but the audience has a response to it. Like, at least I got something out of them and you can move along. And if you're skilled, you're not going to let that trip you up. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, so I think, you know, one question we get is, you know, is it
0: sad? Is it happy? It doesn't really matter. It sounds like the same for you for yeah. improv. If you can reach people emotionally and the brain will only spend that emotional energy, if it's valuable enough, then I'm in. And as you know, I'm getting one of your secret sauces is Audience, live audience. Yes. So anything with a social layer is going to be more neurologically immersive because we get grab the energy from other people, just like people, you know, laugh in a movie theater much more than they, you know, watch at home by themselves a streaming movie. So having people together, that social layer very important, and having that live feedback that you can't fake.
1: You talk about a clever experiment in 1974, which demonstrated the fragility of self-reported data. Can you talk about that study with us? This was uh, uh, University of British Columbia in Stony Brook.
0: Yeah, one of my favorite experiments ever. So it's an experiment where they had a uh, good-looking female research assistant, and they recruited heterosexual males to presumably do a little survey that this lady took. Um, So she was a confederate of the experimenters. And after this experiment, they debriefed, which is normal, Uh debrief experimental experimental participants. And they said, hey, do you think this woman's good looking? Do you think she was attracted to you? Were you attracted to her? And these are undergraduates, right? So they're attracted to, you know, anything that moves, basically. Uh And they did something very clever. They hid the treatment condition in plain sight. So half the people talked to this good looking research assistant, um, uh, you know, outside the building uh, on campus. And the other half talked to her. Um, across the span of a very high bridge over a gorge right oh. and it was some setup on why you know they were meeting outdoors and so when humans are standing over a very st- high bridge you have this arousal effect you've got to pay attention right so you don't fall over that edge and kill yourself so no matter if, if you have a fear of heights or not everyone has elevated heart rate your skin sweats a little bit and the men interpreted that Uh, physiologic response which is unconscious as attraction to that woman oh i was very attracted to her and oh she was really into me Mm. trying to articulate um the uh responses of the brain consciously is fraught with error because the reporting mechanism the brain is just trying to fit a pattern to this right and and again they they hid the experiment in plain sight so Asking people about their unconscious emotional experiences is a fool's errand. And therefore, that rating system that we've all done, how much do you like this uh, phone from one to seven? Compared to what? Compared to my kids? Actually, forget my kids. They talk back to me. My dog is perfect. So how do I compare the phone to my dog? It's
1: impossible. Well, this this is a place where the social scientists and the neuroscientists tend to agree. I mean, the work of Nick Epley, who's someone we work with a lot, says that human beings get it wrong all the time, and our assumptions are wrong, and that he he offers some some workarounds that, that, you know, might work. Um, I was interested in the idea where you talked about that oxytocin is released in the human brain when one is trusted. And that motivates the person who is trusted to reciprocate by being trustworthy. Mm -hmm. So is that like a mirroring thing that's going on there? What's what's happening?
0: Yeah, I think it's the biological basis for the golden rule. And again, oxytocin doesn't work alone. It's just a big chunk of this. It's a signal that says this person's playing nice with me. And as a social creature, there's value to playing nice. And so I'm going to play nice too and see where this thing goes. And there's an anti golden rule, uh, which is largely driven by testosterone, which is you want to play bad. I'll play worse. I will. Yeah, exactly. Right. So Again, for most of us, we understand the value of social experiences. And as you know, Kelly, you know, we have many more receptors for oxytocin in our brains than any other mammal. So we're acutely aware of social information, just, a you know, a little change in gaze, you know, opening your eyes, eyebrows, you know, all those are super subtle emotional signals that all humans
1: understand, or almost all humans. All right. So what do you mean when you describe the brain as a lazy Republican? <laughs> yeah, just to piss everybody off. Yeah, kind of. But- <laughs> Not everyone, half. That's right. So
0: <laughs> no, it pisses off Republicans too. Um, so I it's Republican because it's conservative. It wants to conserve energy. And when we see this immersive state, it's very metabolically costly. When we see this big emotional response, it tells us that the brain values this experience because it's expending the energy to fully process this experience we're having. And it's lazy because through evolution, systems that evolved eons ago are still being used today and sometimes they're maladaptive in our present
1: environment. Um, you write also that relevance increases immersion. And I want to dig into that a little bit too, because my my wife, who's a uh, tenured professor of comedy, has a book coming out in a year. She's just submitting it right now. And her theory taps into some, some of this area. So first, w- t- talk to us about the importance of relevance w- with regard to immersion.
0: Right. So again, my lazy brain, I want to flush out stuff that's not meant for me. It, it, I'll absorb it and then flush it out. Um, if it's relevant, uh, the brain does something called top down, down control. So the top of the brain, the cortex essentially alerts these lower emotional areas that this is really important. So let's now put in a lot more energy to processing this. So, um, I was hiking with my dog, uh, about a month ago. And for the first time, uh, had a mountain lion encounter about a hundred mm. yards. From me. I was by the way, not scared. Cause I had practiced. I knew I was gonna have this eventually hiking, right? Yeah. It's, I had a plan I executed. Everything went fine. I was very focused, right? So this says this is relevant to you right now. And so if you have a baby at home and you see a commercial for, I don't know, Huggies diapers, super relevant. If you don't have a baby at home, just a cute baby commercial, flush it out. Mm -hmm. So metabolically, again, I'm always worried about energy in the brain. Metabolically, we see a bigger energy flow for relevant and immersive information than just immersive information. So in the, in the theater setting, it could be, uh, this is an interesting story, but it doesn't really resonate for me because it's about um, a, a different time period or a different uh, racial group or a different, it's not my music, um, whatever that is. It, it's it's okay, but it's not my thing. Where I hear the Rolling Stones for my mm-hmm. age,
1: I am digging it. I love their stones, right? So mm-hmm. relevant for me. Okay. So, part of my wife's comedy theory, and there there are many theories of comedy, and and both of us o- always felt that they were lacking in certain ways. And her first part of it is that comedy is essentially three things: pain, distance, and recognition. And you're using that like a mixing board. And the one thing that people that doesn't show up in other uh, people's theories of comedy is this idea of recognition. And what we know at Second City is if we have a character in the first act of the show, and you know we're doing these short sketches, some some of them tie together, but if we have a character from the first part of the show who shows up in the second act inside a scene, people laugh. It's not to say that characters do anything funny. It's that they, they recognize the character and the Mm -hmm. character has shown up in a place where they weren't expecting them to be. That's just one example of it. But I think this, this, and you talk about this with syndicated television and and, and this idea that familiarity breeds connection that like, sometimes people just like, like, they like to see the thing that they know. Yeah, which is weird. So it looks like the data suggests
0: that we like stuff we know with a little bit of new. So yeah. not too new. Too new is just weird. I can't deal with it. Um, so new, but not too new. So that's very consistent. I think recognition and relevance are probably very similar concepts neurologically, right? I, I recognize this it's meaningful to me. I think it's so interesting that you find it happens in a very short period of time where in act yeah. two they re-enter and you're like,
1: oh, here's our guy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um uh, you talk about Charles Melcher and the future of storytelling conference, which I, I presented at a, a while ago. And I went to this panel on VR technology, and one of the co- he's a former co-host of Radio Lab was there. And, it, and this guy was complaining that this new technology was manipulating people's emotions, which I thought was very funny because the whole idea of radio lab is to use all these sounds to manipulate people's emotions. And this guy went on a tirade, but t- talk to us about the, the relevance of that, that uh, conference and, and your work. Yeah. Thank
0: you. Uh, I mean, first of all, as social creatures, we're always trying to manipulate other people's emotions. We yeah. call it persuasion. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. And and there's no shortage of movies, improv, we want to have emotional experiences. And one of the light motifs of the book is, in fact, that when we have these peak emergent experiences, we begin to train our brains to be present and emotionally vulnerable. So something like improv, great movies, great novels add to our ability to really flourish in life. And I think that's an amazing finding uh, that's very new in the literature, but we need to have these peak experiences. Um In future storytelling, yeah, there's all kinds of interesting technologies there. Um, VR is not a total win. Um, no. you know, VR experience has to be structured in a way that uh, allows me to have my own adventure within bounds that still create that narrative arc, generates tension, has a reason to have me keep looking at this experience, not just, you know, turn off my headset. Um, and so I should say, Kelly, you know, and we say this in the book very clearly, that you know the the narrative art is the most effective way to sustain immersion that we've ever found i mean it's it's just about perfect. Aristotle was right twenty three hundred years ago. this really works, and so for all of us who communicate, you know thinking about that art, generating authentic emotions at human scale, it's really a kind of a superpower right You know this, your yeah. wife knows this you you train your people to know this, but I think for regular humans, we often tell very discursive stories. And that diminishes the brain's desire, this lazy Republican brain to put that mm-hmm. power into the story. So uh, I want to have an impact on you just to entertain you perhaps, or to inform you or to
1: influence you. Um, think of the narrative arc as that really effective way to do it. And shorter, I I was- ahead, by the yeah, way. And, and, ti- and timing's interesting because you talk about this peak end rule. Can you explain what, what that is?
0: Yeah. So we tend to remember and be influenced by experiences in which um there's a peak, there's some kind of emotional peak, and we remember the end of experiences. But if I can put the peak at the end, I've actually put a lot of tension into your brain. And so that's when we can really influence individuals. So if you can structure that narrative arc so that there's a second peak on the end, then I've kind of captured you for a couple of minutes at least, and I can ask you to help me or do something. And so um I think it's kind of you know better than me, Kelly. But it'd be kind of unusual to have kind of a narrative arc and then a little, little peak at the end. I'm starting to see this in movies, in yeah. which there's a little kind of twist at the end where you know the the major stories have resolved and then there's something new and maybe that's a hook to watch the sequel or whatever that is. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys do this in improv?
1: Do you think about peak end rule? We well, okay. So the one of the one of the things that's sort of crucial in in what we do in the sketch comedy field, which is basically it's a review. Which is got its roots in vaudeville, so when you the vaudeville running order was very important because you know those shows went on on and on and on, and they wanted to turn over audience, so they had a slot for a bad act uh or two, so people would leave. So uh, you know you very much think about where where so you, at at a second city show, probably the most important uh, the two most important are your first act closer, so what people during intermission are going to be talking about with each other. Good. and because if you can anchor them then that the show is good you're fine. Like it, the the rest of the show can be solid. But but you but your closer and and there's two actually it's interesting. First that closer and what we call the run out. So the sort of like the maybe at the 10 minutes before the end, you really want to ramp that up, ramp that up and then it it, it almost doesn't matter what the last thing is as long as you've ramped them up to something emotional. And we actually have it in the show right now where um, there's this brilliant scene um, and it's sort of right before the end where an actru- actress is sits down in a chair and breaks and she falls and, and it, the audience thinks it's actually happening and she's a big girl and she can't get up without help and then she starts to do this very funny sort of go around it's all about shaming people who are big. And like the, you said, you said, I broke the chair, not that the chair broke. And, you know, maybe John Belushi sat on that chair, you know, and then it leads to like, like this big thing where she big sort of production number. But we're, now that you're talking about, it, I'm realizing we're getting them emotionally with this actress's pain. And then it's, you figure out it's funny, though. I will tell you, it is not unusual for the next morning, us to get emails or calls checking to see if the actress is okay. Oh, that's but that's wonderful. They oh, it's were oh, it's the best. It. It's yeah. the best, right? Right, and it, ha- and it, <laughs> it happens was all like every week. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly and right. Like, oh, it's wasn't it so clear to you that this? Okay, maybe not. But no, that that that's again. There was as I'm reading your book, I, I'm I'm writing down stuff because I'm like the, the I, I often say this about our work at Second City because of what we do, creating in front of audiences, performing in front of audiences, constant iteration um, that. It's like a giant laboratory for human behavior and understanding, like, why are they responding in this way? And and so it's it's uh, it's a treat then to sort of look at your work and then look through the lens of what we do and sort of think, wow, there's crossover here. Yeah. And, and you know, you're giving this audience by that peak end rule
0: something to enjoy. They remember parts of the whole show, but that end part, which is the last thing I saw is going to be, you know, in memory yeah. uh, more easily. Saved in memory. And so you're letting them enjoy that, you know, for days or weeks later, which is an
1: amazing thing. And also you get the nice word of mouth, which That's right. we all like. Yes, exactly. Um, you uh, also talked about the Maisie Learning Conference. And I know Elliot, he's, he's a, a friend. Um, and the quote associated with that was, quote, as social creatures, we nearly always perform better when others are around us. So t- talk to us about that, because I think that, that I don't know that everyone believes that or knows that. That's a good question. So we there's a
0: bunch of experiments in the book um, in which we looked at uh, learning cooperation by people, by themselves, people in groups, different settings, VR, um, branching simulations. And Elliot Maisie, who has apparently never allowed experiments at this conference, Ah. conference, um, allowed us to do this with MIT. And basically, they're really kind of simple uh, sort of trivial pursuit kind of task. And people radically outperformed in groups and alone, which is probably not surprising, crowdsourcing, but their brains were much more switched on. Right. And that's Mm. what's interesting is that even now, I think this is so relevant post COVID. You know, even now, I think it's important for employees to be in the office at least some days a week to interact, have those random collisions with others. It's important to be in theaters. Um, All the things that we said we can do alone or with my family I'm um, doing it in a group really accentuates the value the brain gets from that. And again, that value is what drives up our satisfaction with life. We had an amazing
1: experience and it's more amazing when it involves other people. I mean, nothing was clearer to me than, I mean, second city was shut down for a year. And even when we came, when we came back and there was only like 50 people in the theater, cause it's all we were allowed to, and we're all wearing masks. Mm-hmm. Um, but the emotional, res- oh God, and, uh, the other thing I saw, uh Come From Away was touring and I'd never seen it and it won the Tony Award. It's beautiful musical. And my wife and I went, I mean, I had never cried and laughed at a show as much as that. And that was like the first thing I had seen in a big sort of venue. So I having, having my Second City experience, they're you know, sort of like, oh, we're almost kind of back. And then this other one. Like, to to not pay attention to the power of what was going on in the room. And I knew multiple people in both spaces at the time who all said the same thing to me afterwards. People were giddy.
0: I think the first conference I went to after the lockdowns was the TED conference in Vancouver last yeah. April. People were giddy. And and I had forecasted wrongly that the handshake would go away. We'd all be like, you know, mm. and everyone got COVID tested people were hugging their handshaking. I mean, like every talk, understanding ovation, you know, we were so happy to be together. And that's something core about our human nature that we need other humans. We need physical close contact.
1: All right. I have to talk to you about something that I, I don't, you might have science for, but I think we have to argue about this a little bit. And it's about open offices. Mm -hmm. So you say in the book that productivity was highest in the most open location and dropped when spaces had walls. Talk, talk to me about that. Right. This was a
0: study we did at a very well-known uh, furniture maker's um, uh, design yard. So they have all the kinds of different offices and, and they wanted to know this question. So first of all, it's based on one study. Yep. Uh, what's interesting is that we measured physiologic activity in the brain, lots of ways, blood draws, EEG peripheral measures. And, you know, it, the the open space, which was a coffee bar was noisier, people were moving by. And yet the individuals felt more privacy, and their brains worked hard, not only they physically more productive, objectively and tasks we gave them, but their brains were more immersed. And so I think huh. that again, taps into that social nature. So I'm an introvert and I actually really like quiet. So if I'm in an yeah. open space, like a coffee shop, I'll just put on my,
1: my headphones. Headphone, right, right. Well, I mean, cause that's a very real distraction. We can, we can only pay attention to what, and you talk about this, so that like the amount of things that we are just discarding and letting in, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's astounding. And that's why, and that's why I know this. So we have an open office area where a lot of the salespeople were. They're all, they all stayed home. Like they've not come back. And because they're, they, they did well, they did better when they were, when they were home. Now there's other situations. I went over to that area the other day and everyone was having lunch together. And I'm like, I have missed this. This is like, and, and, and that's a very real also part of the day. So I think really smart employers are less trying to pick one or the other and instead looking at time. I
0: agree. And looking at both, right? So have a yeah. chance to have group stuff. And if you're trying to get people back to the office, yeah, you buy lunch. Do pizza and beer no. on Friday. You know, whatever it takes to get people together to re socialize. Did you guys try virtual happy hours during the lockdowns? Oh yeah. The first yeah. one was great, second one was okay, and the third one no one showed up. So it was that's exactly not the it. same, right? Something's So no, Cocktails with friends. It was like, I don't really need to do that again. No, it wasn't. So yeah, so some work is great and having some space by yourself also very important. If you're writing, I cannot write with noise. I gotta
1: have a no, quiet. Yeah. I can't write with music and I love music. You can't yeah, either. But- I guess tucked into the music. No, I can't That's do That's the it. problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I tried with, uh, I love Keith Jarrett, the jazz pianist, and I, w- I would put that on and I just find myself, why am I stopping writing? Okay, like, nope, silence. Um, You have a chapter the Business of Happiness and you say, quote, about one half of life satisfaction is due to the genes your parents gifted you. I mean, just true? It's Very
0: well supported in literature. So, yeah, if you're an optimistic, happy person, a lot of that's due to your genetics. Some of it's your life experiences. So, you know, you can change that maybe 10, 15%. Um, and so so that's think, a meaningful number. Yeah, for sure. You can control some of that, right? And and genes also have regulatory regions. You can turn on and turn off other parts of genes. So, you know, I think it's getting a good night's sleep, you know, eating well, exercising, and then having great friends. I mean, having having rich social relationships is more important to happiness than quitting smoking is to lengthening your life. So... You know it's really important and again I'm a huge introvert I can stay in the lab 12 hours not talk to anybody be totally happy but I really started investing in in friendships and you know socializing more because I knew I should for me just to be healthier healthier and happier so I uh, turned 50 this is 8 years ago 7 years ago and I had four surprise birthday parties wow four, four, I mean no not because I'm so wonderful it's because I invested in social relationships yeah. so if a weirdo nerd like me can do it, everyone else who is a normal human can also have rich social relationships and, you know, pick the right people, right? If you're around neurotic people, unhappy people, that's going to suck. If you know, we all have an empathy, it's going to suck down your own emotional state. So try to be those people who build you up, who
1: are enthusiastic about seeing you. And I, we had a social scientist on the podcast a while ago from the university of Michigan, who, who talks about close ties, um, uh, weak ties and dormant ties and and actually saying you know don't discount your dormant ties just cuz you haven't talked to someone in 3 years they're probably going to be thrilled to hear from you and i will tell you again through covid i had a lot a lot more time to make those phone calls or those zoom calls and people were thrilled and 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 i sort of reignited a lot of relationships so i'm having lunches with people maybe i hadn't seen in 8 9 years um, I'm going to concerts more. You know, we, we're empty nesters now, and my wife doesn't. She's an introvert and doesn't love going to concerts. So I have concert buddies, and I'm like, "What do you want to see?" And I just got tickets to Graham Nash, who's coming to a small venue just down the street. And I'm sort of like, "This might be my last time to see him do his storytelling," and 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 I and I want I want to have that experience.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think also when you have been married long enough, you're old enough. You're not looking for some girl, or whatever, you know, you no. your knows you and trusts you. And yeah, I have those concert buddies. Have, you know, I have a bunch of uh, guy friends that we go do outdoor stuff with, and my wife's not a sort of outdoorsy person. She's like, go knock yourself out, you know? And, um, and so I think it's, it's finding those areas. And I do think it's easier when you get maybe in your 30s and older, in your 20s, you're still trying to figure your life out and, you know, what's going on. But, uh, yeah, expand that, that social network. So easy now with the internet, right? You can meet lots of people. I mean, yeah, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not talking about Tinder. Sorry. <laughs> so,
1: no, but it's also like, you know, yeah. even in a place like, uh, so I had a, we're opening a, a theater in New York, in Williamsburg, in Brooklyn. And uh, we're going to go in January, a bunch of us, and we just want to attend a bunch of different things. And so I was like, oh, let me look through. And I'm like, oh my God, the wealth of things I could go do in New York City. Is off the ch- And I know that in, in Chicago, because I'm in the industry, but it's like, it was wonderful. And I'm just like, there's so much theater and music and art and experiences and, you know, all these like interactive Van Gogh exhibits and stuff. It's like, there's so much more than when we were growing up. Yeah,
0: for sure. And, and I think the
1: really odd
0: thing about all this work on life satisfaction and flourishing is that to be, you know, to build your own, extend your own lifespan, to be happier and live healthier... Yeah. You have to build those social relationships. You do that by giving to others. You've got to help others. You've got to be of service to others. So I try to end every conversation with the word service. How can I be of service to you? People are like, Mm. oh, wow. Okay, that's great. So I'm a helper. I want to be part of your community. And I think it's a great way to connect to people. Again, maybe just because I'm a weirdo um, introvert, but... Um, you know, I love it at my age, at least when I can help somebody. I'm like, okay. And I don't need payback. I don't need you to reciprocate. I am I, I feel good myself. Like, okay, I did a good thing in the world and and that's okay. I'm fine with that. Like lunch. Remember when you were younger, you just like keep sort of keep track of who paid for lunch. Yeah. I'm just hoping anyone wants to have lunch with me. I'll pay. I'll pay every day. I, know, I, don't, I don't care. care. Yeah. Lunch is
1: cheap, right? Friendship's valuable. Lunch is cheap. That's right. All right. In a moment, we're gonna ask you for a thank you because question and I'll set that up. Uh, but uh, are you a dog person or a cat person? Dog person. I used to be so, a cat person. I had a dog that switched me. She was a cat oh, dog. That's interesting. So so I like I like both. I we have a bernese Mountain dog uh, that that we love. Um you uh you have research that says you don't bring cats to work.
0: Yeah, right. So we found that dogs, because we created them to be essentially the best humans ever, um not only de stress us more than cats in experiments we have run. This is published literature. Um, you know, everybody kind of likes a dog. It builds trust if you have a dog. Um, during COVID time, I'm six four, 200 pounds. I'm a big guy. Mm-hmm. During COVID, I'm walking my dog three, four times a day because the gyms are closed. I'd have like young women cross the street to pet my dog. Just you know, people need interaction. That doesn't really happen normally because I'm kind of scary-ish looking. Um, so you know, uh, dogs are really great at work. So yeah, if you can allow dogs, you guys allow dogs at work? Do people bring their dogs in?
1: I you know, it's changed so much that they used to dogs used to come to work, and, and but I also remember some people were afraid of dogs. And so there was sort of like, oh, okay. so you you really I think what you got to do is sort of figure out your place and where and if everyone if everyone's cool, they're not allergic or that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So you've been on the podcast before, so you've shared a yes and story. And we were talking before we started that we've done this research around how do you stay inside a potentially difficult conversation with someone that you don't want a yes and. And we have a thing there you you say thank you because you thank them for their position, and uh you the because is is you find something, anything that you might agree with uh inside what they're saying and 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 so far, in the tests we've run, people stay in the conversation longer they They learn about the other person they they understand their position, that that sort of thing. And I think it's especially the times we're living in. The, per, perhaps an important skill to have is how to, you know, stay inside the conversation. So do you have a thank you because story for us?
0: Uh,
1: I do. I have a,
0: a acquaintance, not a close friend who uh, is a physician and my father has some health issues and I called her up. Uh, I know her, but I don't know her that well. And uh, she was very nice to offer me free advice. And so I invited her to happy hour with my very close friends and she and I got in this rant about um, racial discrimination. So, you know, very hot topic. Um, she's Eastern European, you know, I'm white. And, um, uh, and you know, she just kept on saying, well, this is the way it is. And I have all these black friends who say this and that. I said, well, let's look at the data. And we had this very heated conversation. Everyone else dropped out. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, I like her a lot. I don't want to have her back to happy hour. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I, I really respect her, her views. I just said, you know, I want more support than anecdote because I need to understand. And if you have only anecdotes, then those are important to the individuals, but they don't tell me about the, the whole world. So um, yeah, it was, it was very, uh, it felt uncomfortable for everybody there, except her and I, because oh, we, right. You know, Cause you so, were in it. Yeah, we were in it. We were, and we were, you know, kind of loud. We were about a big brewery and I think the voices were kind of loud. Um, but I think if you can uh, disagree respectfully, And go, yeah, but you're still not telling the point. So for me, as as a kind of weirdo scientist, I value my friends so much who will disagree with support. If I'm wrong about something, I have learned. I tell my graduate students every day, I dream to be wrong. Make, make, you know, our hypotheses are wrong. Great. What is this experiment really telling us? So Mm -hmm. I love to be wrong as much as possible. And that means I do all kinds of stupid things and learn from them.
1: I love that. I was just on actually right before we got hopped on. I have a weekly call of my friend, my colleague and friend, and she's one of my truth teller friends. I have a, a few of these at work and their job, they they I've got all the seniority there, and people do not tell you the truth, and and they certainly won't criticize you. And I'm like, please, can I make it your job that you will challenge me? And uh, we have another friend who's another truth teller who just announced she's leaving Second City, my friend Abby, um, who's an extraordinary human being. And I'm like, ah, I've got to find another truth teller because you can't put all the burden on, on this one person. So we're so valuable, these people. And it's not because it's it's the opposite
0: of them disliking you. It's that they really love you and they want you to get better at the thing you're trying to learn about. Right. Yeah. So. Like to me, love, honesty is the essence of love. So I would never want to be dishonest with anybody. I don't I know the answer to do I like fat in this dress, (laughs) right? That's that's a different story than do you think this thing I made has value? Do you think it can be
1: better? Oh, I'd love to help on that. That's interesting. I love it. The book is called Immersion: The Science of the Extraordinary and the Source of Happiness. Paul Zach, thank you for coming on the show. Kelly Leonard, you are the best. Thank you so much getting the yes and podcast is produced by the second city and wgn radio we are supported at the second city by mike farinaccio and colleen fahey our show is produced by andrew harris at wgn the music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by jukebox the ghost if you're interested in knowing more about the second city you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com